Acts chapter 15 tonight, looking at verses 1 through 35, Acts chapter 15. Um, if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. We have the words up there on the screen. You can follow along with as well. Um, so, so far in our study of, um, am, I, am I really loud or is this just me? I feel like I'm super loud right now. Can you turn me, turn me down a little bit, Brandon? I, okay. There we go. That feels better. Okay, anyways, so far, so far in our study of the book of Acts, um, we, we have really looked at a whole lot of really just incredible things that have taken place as the message of Jesus began to just spread far and wide um, from Acts chapter 1 there where the, where, the, where the apostles gathered together and received the Holy Spirit and this power came over them. And, and from that moment on, it just seems like um, that th- th- God was moving in incredible ways. People were getting saved literally by the thousands. Miracles were being done, lives were being changed, and something was happening that hadn't happened for centuries, which was that the Jewish world was being united together with the, the non-Jewish world, what the Bible calls the Gentiles. Something that literally for, for centuries upon centuries hadn't happened, right? Now, now, one would think that this would have been a really, really good thing, and it really was at first, but as we're going to see today, when you bring people together from completely different backgrounds, from different cultures and convictions, when you bring all that together into one church, into one Christian community, the natural result is that challenges are going to come. Challenges that have the ability to cause major problems and divisions. Challenges that have the potential to tear the church apart, if not dealt with carefully. And the particular challenge we're going to be talking about tonight was a serious one. In fact, it was, it was the issue of what's required for a person to come to faith in Jesus and get saved. We're going to look at that tonight. Super important topic, not just for back then but very much still for today. So let's go ahead and read our verses for today. Then we're going to ask the Lord's blessing upon our time. Um, a lot of verses, but I, 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 it'll make sense why we're going through all of them. It's kind of one narrative tonight. So I'm going to start here in verse 1, reading through verse 35. It says this, While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, Unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the other believers, and and they told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles too were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and the elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue, and at the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way, by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul um, told about the miracles, signs, and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And when they had finished, James stood and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a, a people, to, to take from them a people for himself, and this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. As it is written, afterward I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it, so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken. He who made these things known so long ago. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. 
Instead, we should write to them and tell them to abstain from food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from, from consuming blood. For these, um, the laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. Then the apostles and elders together with the whole church in Jerusalem chose delegates and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. The men chosen were two of the church elders, Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas. And this is the, re- the letter that they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, Greetings. We understand that some men from there have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we did not send them. So we decided, having come into complete agreement, to send you official representation along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat strangled of animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. So the messengers went at once to Antioch, where they called a general meeting of the believers and delivered the letter. And there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. And then Judas and Silas, both being prophets, spoke at length to the believers, encouraging and strengthening their faith They stayed for a while, and then the believers sent them back to the church in Jerusalem with the blessing of peace. And Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch. They and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage of scripture that we have tonight, and I just pray that you would speak through it, Lord. Holy Spirit, we know that there are many, many distractions uh, in our minds that, that, that come up, and I just pray you'd help us to put those out, Lord God. So whatever went on today or is going on later, God, please give us the ability just to focus in on your word and focus in on you tonight for these next few moments, and I just pray that you would just move in, our, in us, Lord God. Be glorified in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we saw last week that Paul and Barnabas had gotten back to the church at Antioch after their just incredible mission trip that they went on, and they gave their mission report um, to the church there, and they, and they stayed there for quite a long time. Now, it would sure seem that this was definitely... Um, God's providential plan for them to be back in Antioch because about this time, what we see there in, in, in verse 1, that these Jewish that men that seem to be converts to Christianity, we'll talk about that a little later, but these Jewish men came to this church in Antioch and, and began to tell these people that if they want to be truly saved, if they want to be truly followers of the Lord and connected to the church rightly, they first had to be circumcised. Now, To these Jews, what they really meant by this is kind of seen in verse 5. What they expected of them is to be Jewish converts. They expected them to have a physical mark, which circumcision was all about, was about the mark of being a Jew and part of that group. Um, They expected them to follow uh, the laws and the traditions. Um, If you know anything about that, there was a whole lot of them. There was over 600, I think 600 and... 12 or somewhere in that vicinity of, of laws, not including the bunch of the ones that had been kind of added by people later on. Um, and, and we need to understand that when these Jewish men came and said this, this wasn't like, we'd prefer you to do this. It was very much, they were telling these people, you're not really saved until you come to Judaism and, and follow our law. Well, this didn't settle very well with Paul and Barnabas. Um, verse 2 tells us that they argued vehemently, meaning they just argued intensely uh, about this. And after much argument, um, when they couldn't come to a consensus, that the church sent Paul and Barnabas and a number of these church leaders to Jerusalem to, to meet with Peter and the apostles to get this thing settled once and for all. Now, I'm sure to an extent, this probably seemed just a little bit ridiculous to Paul and Barnabas because they were the ones that had been on the mission trip. They had seen all the miracles God had done. They had seen how these people's lives were changed. They had seen the the evidence of the Spirit of God in these people. So the fact that they would have had to go deal with this, like, how could they not be saved? We've seen it all, and yet they knew how big of a deal this was. 
And so they, they agreed. They, they went on to Jerusalem. And as they got there, um, well, on their way there, we saw in verse 3 that they stopped in, in a couple towns to um, just share with the other believers there about everything that God was doing. And, and then they finally arrive in Jerusalem and were just greeted with, with open arms and, and just telling these people about everything that God had been doing, about all these, how these people had been saved and all these miracles that were happening. And, and you would think they would be like just full of excitement. And certainly there was many that were excited, but these people, these men, as verse 5 says, from the, the, the sect of the Pharisees, if you know about the Pharisees, they were like the most religious of the religious, if, if you will. I mean, they, they were extremely very um, serious about every little dot and, and tittle of the law, if you will. And, and so they came and, and again made this statement about these people needing to be converted to Judaism before they could really be saved. And so what we see in verse 6 is that Peter and the apostles and the church elders or leaders, they gather together and begin to work through this dispute. Now, if you've been through this passage before, you may have heard this term, um, the Jerusalem Council. And this is what Acts 15 is. It's, it's the Jerusalem Council is what it's been known as, where these, like all the apostles and church leaders gathered together to really settle this dispute about how somebody comes to faith in Christ once and for all. Well, after much debate, they, they, they finally come to a consensus, and, and Peter stands up. Now, it's important that it was Peter, because Peter was really seen at this time as the, as the really leader of the church. This kind of goes back to the Gospel of John, excuse me, in chapter 21, where there's that scene where Jesus is telling Peter, you know, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, then, then feed my sheep, tend my sheep, tend my lambs, right? And so it, it was as if Jesus was giving Peter authority o- over the church as the Lord was about ready to go back to, to heaven, right? And so the people of that first century church revered Peter as a, the leading voice, if you will, especially when it came to doctrinal issues. So as Peter spoke, he, he basically summed up this decision with a few basic points of how he came to the decision that they did. Well, the first one was basically reminding them that, that it wasn't just Paul and Barnabas that had been preaching to the Gentiles, and it wasn't just Paul and Barnabas who had seen evidence of these Gentiles being saved, because Peter himself had also preached to Gentiles. If you remember back in Acts chapter 10, there was that whole thing about this sheet of unclean animals that came down in this vision that Peter saw, and the Lord said, Peter, kill and eat. He's like, Lord, I can't. I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. And he says, don't call something unclean that I have declared clean, right? And what, basically what this was all about was God saying, look, these Gentiles that you're looking at as unclean, that, that are not fit to be among you, he says, I'm changing that. In fact, I want you to go share my message with these Gentiles because I'm bringing them into my church. I'm making them my people as well. And so Peter did. He went and he shared the gospel, the message of Christ, with, the, with these, these Christians up there in Caesarea Philippi. And, and in Acts chapter 10, we, we see that these men were clearly saved. Because as Peter went to the house of that Roman centurion, it said that he and his household came to faith in the Lord, and then something really important happened. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to speak in other tongues, just like happened back in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And it was so important because what happened at Pentecost was this sign that the Holy Spirit had come into the apostles, right? And so the fact that the Gentiles had the exact same sign, what Peter was saying, was, look, why would God give them the Holy Spirit if it wasn't legit? Why would they receive the same sign from heaven that we did if if God wasn't calling them to be his own as well, right? So he's making this argument to them that that obviously God is doing something among these people. And then thirdly, he makes this practical argument. And he says to them, basically, and and you kind of see that um, down here in this last verse, um, he says, why are you now, verse 10, challenging God by burdening these Gentiles with a yoke that neither we or our ancestors were able to bear? What he was talking about there was the law. The, the law of Moses, those 600 and some commands, right? And Peter's like, we can't even follow those things. So why in the world would we expect them to follow something that, that we who've had this law for centuries, we ourselves can't do that as well, right? And if you think about this just from a logical perspective, what Peter's saying here. He's like, listen, if, if we can't follow it, and you're saying that you must convert to Judaism and follow the law to be saved, what's that say for us? Because we can't do it either. You say, are you following? 
the pro- we're going to see in a minute, salvation does not come through obedience to commands or, or laws. So anyways, in conclusion, um, he, he basically says, like, look, in verse 11, no, uh, the, the Gentiles do not have to convert to Judaism to be saved, but rather, um, they just need to come to faith in Christ. They just need to trust in Jesus, tr- trust in, in the work that, that Christ had done. Now, that's one issue that's kind of dealt with here in this passage, but the passage doesn't stop there. The next thing we see um, over on verse, like, uh, see, verse 13, I think it is, where it says, when he finished, James stood up. So this James was not the apostle James. This James was James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, right? So it had the same mother, obviously different father, because God was Jesus' father, right? Joseph was James's father. So this was the brother of Jesus, which I'm sure gave him just a little bit of clout with the people, and he stood up and began to speak. As he did, he confirmed that, that Peter's um, words were correct, um, reminding the people that they should not expect the Gentiles to, to convert to Judaism to be saved. And then, he, and then he quotes this passage of Scripture from the Old Testament. What you see there in verses 16 through 18 is actually a quote from the book of Amos, the prophet Amos, back in chapter 9, um, verses 11 and 12. And basically what this prophecy was, was talking about was it was talking about the end times, future restoration of Israel when, when Jesus is going to come back, sets up his throne, um, restores Israel back to their former glory, and essentially rules the world. So that's what that passage in Amos is talking about. That's the one he quoted there. In verses 16 through 18. And what's really interesting about that passage is that it says when, when Jesus sits on his throne and restores Israel, that Gentiles are going to be a part of his kingdom. But not like as secondhand citizens, not as slaves, but as people that are, are citizens with all the rights of the kingdom. And so James quotes this to these people, and again, just from a logical perspective, he's like, if, if they're going to be citizens of the same kingdom that we are, not secondhand citizens, that means they're going to be our brothers and sisters, they're going to be our spiritual family. So what Peter's saying is correct, these Gentiles certainly have to be saved. However, this is kind of where it gets interesting, because James goes ahead and he adds something here um, that really is kind of a different issue, but an important issue. In verse 9, again, we, he agreed, but then he says in verse 20 and 21, listen to what he says here, instead, we should write to them and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, to abstain from sexual, from sexual immorality, from eating meat and strangled animals, and from consuming blood, for these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. Now, what's interesting about those couple verses is that basically sums up what in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 17 and 18, we're all talking about. Now, we're, we're not going to go back and, and read all that, but if you don't think about the, the Jewish culture and the Jewish law, the law to them was sacred, and, and what was spoken of in chapter 17 and 18 were things that the, the Jews considered to be like huge no-nos. Like, you don't do this. This is completely out of bounds when it comes to your walk with God. So for one, eating food that was sacrificed to idols, again, was something you just did not do. Um, consuming blood was something that was not allowed because it was connected to the pagan practices of false religious religion in Canaan where they were at and when the, when the law was given and, and God wanted them to be separate from that. There was also this issue of strangled animals, which kind of seems odd, and yet, if if you understand it, it's very much related to the idea of consuming blood. And and a a good illustration is this. Like, if you you butcher a cow, right, um, generally speaking, it's killed, and you drain all the blood, and, and then it's butchered after it's all drained, right? Well, I know this is kind of, like, graphic, but picture instead, like, a rabbit in a snare, where you're trapping and you get a rabbit in a snare, the rabbit dies, and you don't get to it until hours later, what happens is the blood coagulates and it doesn't drain out, if you will, of the body of of the animal. Therefore, the blood is still in the meat. And so they would not eat strangled animals for that reason. Like an animal caught in a snare or whatever, even though it's dead, they wouldn't eat it because they could not drain the blood out of it. Again, blood being something that was forbidden for Jews to consume. 
So hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. Um, now, the whole sexual immorality thing, that should seem like an obvious one, but in, in Leviticus 18, really what that seems to be talking about is the idea of more who you're not allowed to marry. Now, again, us to us, this seems like, well, duh, but apparently in these pagan cultures, like marrying a close relative, like a sister or a, a whatever like that, it was something that was common. And this was something that was literally forbidden by the Jews to do. And, and, and from more than that, it's something that as a Jew, that you would literally, if you were caught doing any of these things, you would be like excommunicated. You'd be literally thrown out of the nation of Israel. And at the end of Leviticus 18, verse 29, it says that whoever commits any of these detestable sins will be cut off from the community of Israel. And so anyways, the point of it is, I'll get back to just to kind of sum it up. James says, look, you don't have to follow the law at its completion. You don't have to convert to Judaism to be saved. However, what we're going to ask you Gentiles to do is to abstain from these few things. Okay, makes sense? Now, here's the question we should ask. Is that a contradiction? Is it a contradiction, like, to the decision that had just been made by Peter and the others. Like they had just literally agreed that salvation does not come through the law, but only by grace through faith. Then why would James say this? And maybe a better question is, is why would Peter, Paul, and, and the other apostles agree to this? Because it almost seems like a little bit of a contradiction. You're saved only by grace through faith. However, you need to do this, Right? Well, we can see that they did agree. I mean, verses 23 through 25, the Jerusalem Council wrote a letter. They, they sent it to, down to, to, to the church in Antioch. They, they took it there, Paul and Barnabas, Judas and Silas. They, they confirmed that decision. So they did agree to it. So was it a contradiction or not? Well, the answer is no. In fact, the statement really wasn't about salvation at all that had already been said. What this was about was more along the lines of maintaining unity and fellowship between the Jewish and Gentile believers. Like, it was about a matter of respecting one another and not becoming a snare or a stumbling block to other Christians, thereby causing them to sin. So basically, like, even though it was decided that converting to Judaism was not necessary for people to be saved, the reality was, to the Jews, the law of Moses was still something to them that was very, very sacred. In fact, they were so used to obeying the law, they were so used to being, that being something they were required to do, they basically looked at the law for what morality was. To them, morality was what the law said to do and not to do. So the question we have to ask then, was it right for the Jerusalem Council to ask this of the Christians? Like, why not just tell the Jews? You don't need to follow the law anymore. Don't worry about that. I mean, they could have done that, and yet they didn't. So the question we should ask then is why? Well, for one, because the law isn't bad. I think oftentimes today we look at the law and go, we don't want none of that. Well, we shouldn't have that attitude because the law's good. The law's not bad at all. It was good. It still is. Romans chapter 7 and verse 12. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says the law itself is holy. Its commands are holy. They're right and, and they're good. And so the point was, was if the Jews still wanted to obey the, the food laws and celebrate their feast days and keep their traditions, there wasn't anything wrong with that. J just because... The decision to the Gentile was, was that you don't need to follow the law. It didn't mean that the Jews couldn't still follow the law if they chose to, if that makes sense. Furthermore, I believe it would have been, I think, I think it would have been wrong for the apostles to ask the Jews to ignore the law. And this is why. Listen to Romans chapter 14 and verse 23. It says, and this is talking about eating and drinking, some of the stuff we're talking about here in Acts 15. He says, if you, don't, if, if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you're sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you're not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. And so to the, to the Jew whose mind was set on, okay, the law is what morality is all about, and to them, not following these things was considered a sin to them because it was their conviction that I need to do this. 
So even though they, didn't, they told the Gentiles, you're not required to do these things, to the Jew, to them, it was still sin that they didn't because they were convicted in their heart that they needed to follow these things. Does that make sense? Like James chapter 4, verse 17, it's to, if, if, you know, if, if a man knows what he ought to do and does not do it, it says to him it is sin. And so the, the, there's, the, there's the real thing here that seems a little bit crazy and you ought to be careful with it. But people have different convictions based on where they're at in their walk with the Lord based on where they come from, what cultures they come from. Like, I've, I've been traveled around the world in a lot of different places, and there are things that we do here, like, for instance, the way we dress. The way we dress here would be an offense to people in Africa. Like, when we go to Africa, we all, I mean, I, I dress like this because that's normal, but women, you wear dresses or skirts all the way down to your ankles because if you don't, you're considered to be very, very immodest, and it would be extremely offensive to those people in Africa, right? And so the point is, is where you at, how you grew up, what you know, where you're at maturity level, what may be a sin for me may not be for you. But there are things in my life that the Lord has convicted me on that if I do them, I'm in sin. What do you think for you is okay or not? Are you following? I know that's kind of a hard thing to wrap your mind around, but anyway, that's kind of what was going on here. Now, the, the second issue was this. If, if the Gentiles had not listened to this, if the apostles had not asked them of this, this would have caused a major split among the Jews and the non-Jews. And I'll just give you this, this, this illustration. Like, what if they had a church potluck? Right? Jews and non-Jews. And the non-Jews, these Gentiles, they brought a big old pile of pulled pork which if you knew about the Jewish law, pork was forbidden to eat, okay? And yet they brought a big old pile of pulled pork that they got at the market over by the pagan temple where they, the slaughterhouse was at, but the Jews know that all that meat that sold over there was first sacrificed to these false gods. Are you following? This would have just caused all kinds of issues and problems with the Jews and the non-Jews, and so they're like, look, just abstain from these things, Right? And similarly, the third issue is similar, but it had to do with the message of Christ reaching the unsaved Jews. Because if these Gentiles in the church practiced these things, it would be an offense, again, to the Jews that weren't saved, and it would inhibit them from coming to faith in Christ. Um, one of my commentators I read, David Guzik, he said this, if the Gentiles didn't make these few concessions, they would have offended the Jewish community in every city and thereby destroying the witness of Christ in the church. So all this combined, here's the basic point of why James said don't do this. He said this because he wanted there to be unity amongst the believers. He didn't want there to be a Jewish church and a Gentile church because that's not God's plan. The, the plan of God, the, the, the reason Christ came was to bring us together as one people unified in the body of Christ. And he's like, look, just don't do these things. You don't have to follow the rest of the law, but these things are a really, really, really big deal when it comes to fellowship and unity. So set these things aside so you guys can work together in harmony. And what's interesting is that when they sent this letter back, like the Gentiles didn't get mad. They weren't like, this isn't fair. What about my rights? That's not what they said, no. Instead, they were full of joy. They received it with joy. Um, in fact, when the representatives from Jerusalem were sent back, the Gentile Christians sent them with a blessing of peace, meaning we accept your terms completely and we willingly, we're going to willingly do this because we want unity with our Jewish brothers. What happens from there? Well, we're going to see in the rest of the book of Acts. The message of Christ keeps on being taught. The church keeps on growing. And this issue of salvation and all these different things is, is finalized once and for all. Now, at first glance, these may seem like first century issues that don't have a whole lot to do with us today. However, this issue that was dealt with here in Acts 15 is a whole lot more relevant to us today than we may first realize. I'm going to talk about just two basic application points, and the first one is this. It's the issue of what is required for a person to be saved. What does one have to do to be a Christian, to be a part of God's family, to be 
forgiven. Again, here was the issue of Gentiles converting to Judaism. Again, that's something that we really don't deal with today. But what we do deal with today is this idea of what's kind of been coined works-based salvation. Kind of the idea that, that we must do this, this, and this for God to accept us. And if we do that and, and jump through these hoops and, and try to be really, really good and don't do much stuff really, really bad, then maybe someday the scale will be balanced into our favor and God will accept us. The issue then is really the same issue today, and it's this question, can a person get saved through human effort? I think as we'll see in a minute, the answer is very, very much no. See, to, to the Jews, they, when we talk about converting to Judaism, the reason they wanted them to follow the law was because these, these Jewish men, which in really in Scripture are called the Judaizers, is kind of a term that they're kind of coined by. They looked at the law as a means of salvation. They looked at it wrongly. They thought that if they could do this well enough that God would accept them because they were following the law, right? Well, the problem was is they had a complete misconception about why God gave the law. I mean, he gave it for a whole bunch of different reasons, but the main one is this, was to help the people understand that you don't get salvation through the law. That, that was never his purpose. The purpose of the law was to show you you couldn't. The, the purpose of the law was to show you that you could never be good enough to save yourself. At Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul wrote this. He says, Obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. So the law was given not for salvation, but so that we can see our need for a Savior. What was true then is still true today. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 say this very, very well, that, that God saved us by grace when we believed. We can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. We can't boast about it. Like, there, there is nobody that is truly saved that should say to themselves, well, God has accepted me because I did this. Wrong. No, he didn't. Unfortunately, friends, there ain't none of us that are that good. See, we move forward a couple thousand years to today. I mean, one would think, again, this issue is settled. Well, uh, again, this idea about converting to Judaism has been settled. But again, this idea of works-based salvation very much is alive and well in the church today. Like in some realms of Christianity, and I use that word like loosely, um, works-based salvation is still very, very much taught. Um, it's, it's the idea that and, and people do it in so many different ways. Like, like, for one, some churches teach this idea of penance. That we're not really repentant unless we inflict ourselves somehow. Like, have you ever seen one of them old movies, like, where the, the monk was smacking himself with a whip? You know, confessing his sins before God? That, that's the idea of penance. It's the idea that I need to inflict some type of pain upon myself, make myself suffer in some way, so God can see that my repentance is real. Some churches teach this idea of purgatory where, where people, after they die, they're required to suffer, depending on how bad you are. It kind of depends how long you have to suffer. But after death, you have to suffer for so long in some place of holding. And then finally, when you've suffered enough to pay for your sins, God will take you to heaven. Some teach that you have to ha make so many converts to whatever faith they are before you can get saved. Some people teach that you have to be baptized into their church or denomination to be saved. Some teach you have to perform certain rituals to be saved, etc., etc., etc. I mean, there's, there's lots and lots of different things that churches teach other than salvation by grace through faith. Now, what's the problem with that? What's the big deal if somebody says that you know, you've sinned, you, you should whip yourself. I mean, heck, we deserve it. Why not, right? Why shouldn't we have to go through purgatory and suffer a little while for all that we've done? Well, there, there's some really, really big reasons. One, it, it gives people an elevated view of themselves, teaching people that they in themselves, if they work hard enough, can attain God's favor. 
completely unbiblical. Completely. Romans chapter 3. There is no one good. No, not one. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks after God. It, it's, it's, counter, it's counter to what, the, what, what Scripture says. The bigger issue in my mind is that it, it diminishes the holiness and the perfection of God and the sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection. It, it diminishes all of that. Thirdly, it's a gospel that absolutely cannot save. See, to say that we can be good enough or do enough for God to accept us paints a completely different picture than what Scripture says. I'll give you a couple of illustrations. Take Moses arguably the most righteous man alive when he was alive, right? There was this scene where he asked to see the face of God. And God tells him in Exodus thirty-three twenty, you can't see me and live. You look upon my face, you're going to die. I mean, Moses is the most righteous man of his generation. God said, you cannot look at my holy face and live. You'll, you'll fall over dead just like that. Or, or like take Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Like he, he's brought up into heaven. And he sees this, this image of the Lord. Again, he wasn't like physically there. I don't, it's, it's a vision, right? But he sees the Lord. This was his, his response. He's like, it's all over. I'm doomed. I'm a sinful man. I have filthy lips. I live amongst a people of filthy lips. I have seen the Lord of heaven's armies. And again, Isaiah, probably the most righteous man alive in his day. He, he sees the glory of God and he, and he falls. In, and he, he thought for sure that, that he was toast. The point is this, if the most righteous people that have ever lived could not approach God, why in the world would any of us think that we could on our own merit? I don't even hold a candle to Moses or Isaiah. There ain't no way. Here's the reality of Scripture. Isaiah 64 and verse 6 tells us this. This is a real picture about us. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Do you realize what that, the most righteous thing that we could do to God, he looks at it and says it's garbage. Now, that's before Christ, right? I mean, once we come to faith in Christ, we do these things, we re- we're rewarded for them, but that verse is taught. We, we can't approach God on our own. I mean, Romans 5, 6, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at the right time and died for sinners. Do those verses make it sound like we could ever be good enough to get to God on our own? I mean, I think we, if we were honest, we have to answer clearly no. Like, if we could get to God on our own, here's the bigger question. Why did Jesus have to come? If we could be good enough to get to heaven on our own, would not that have been the most cruel thing in all of history to God to send for God to send his son to go and die that gruesome death on the cross when he didn't have to if we could have got there on his own? No. Friends, the whole point of the cross is that we couldn't. The whole reason Jesus came is because we were absolutely in a hopeless condition and we were on a one-way track to hell with no way out with no way of escape. That's why Jesus came. And to teach otherwise, to believe otherwise, friends, it's, it's an offense. It's going to be judged by God harshly someday. Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes here. Even if we were an angel from heaven, if we come and preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That word accursed there in the Greek language is this word anathema that really literally means to be damned to hell. That, that's literally what that word means, right? So he says, as we have said before, I say now again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be cursed or let him be damned. This is kind of the idea. Now what's interesting about those verses is the Apostle Paul wrote that literally months before the Jerusalem council. So you kind of get a picture of what was going on up in Antioch because this was exactly what he was writing about to the churches over in like the Turkey area where we, where we know them today. Paul was telling these, these Judaizers, these Jews, that if they held to that teaching and taught it, they were in big, big trouble. The point is this. Salvation does not and cannot come through human effort. It only comes by faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is the only way we're saved. That's it. 
We have to believe, if you're here and if you have any uncertainty about your salvation, I want to clear it up for you. If you want to know how to be saved, let me clear it up for you. Here, here, here it is. You need to believe that God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. He came here. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He went to a cross, died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and he rose three days later. We need to look at that and believe that it's true. It's not just some fairy tale. It's not just some children's story. That is actual history, right? And here's what we need to believe, because this is what the Bible tells us. We need to believe that based on what Jesus did, that is good enough to save my soul for all of eternity. We need to believe that, but you can't stop there. There needs to be a response to that belief. So based on that belief that I can't get to heaven on my own, my only hope is what Jesus did. Therefore, I say, Jesus, I want what you did on that cross to count for me. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Save my soul and help me to live for you. And Scripture adds this. It says that we need to repent. The, the idea is if we're serious about coming to faith in Christ, we have to let go of our old life, of our old habits, of our old sin, and say, Jesus, I'm giving it all up, and I am following you. Does that mean we're going to be perfect? Absolutely not. But it's a decision in our hearts that we say, I know I can't live in sin and follow my Savior. So Jesus, use me, help me to live for you. Friends, if you've done that by the authority of the Word of God, your name is written in heaven, and you belong to Jesus. Praise God. If you haven't, do it, because eternity is a really, really, really long time to be separated from God. Like, we don't have to jump through hoops. We don't have to give a certain quota of money in the offering plate. We don't have to spend a certain amount of hours doing religious duties. Nope. Being a Christian is not about being good. Salvation is by grace, through faith, and the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and that is it. As Titus 3.5 tells us, he saved us not by the righteous deeds we had done, but according to his mercy. Now, that's the one piece. The second piece is this issue of how Christian liberty needs to be balanced with Christian responsibility to others. Like we've talked over the last few weeks about the importance of the Christian community, how we need to be united together as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we're, that we're spiritual family, that we're children of God. And, and we, we talked about how, like, when, when there's disunity in the body, when, when there's infighting and problems in the church, it has to hurt the heart of God, doesn't it? So this is basically what was at stake in Acts chapter 15. The salvation issue was settled. The whole idea of abstaining from those few things, it was about maintaining unity. It was about these Gentiles willingly giving up some of their rights to be able to be one with the Jews. And what I love about it is that harmony was the result. The mission of Jesus was able to move forward. And we need more of this in the Christian community today. Like, we need Christians today who are more concerned about the people around them than they are about themselves. More concerned about the people around them than they are worried about their preferences or their rights. Because, friends, there are Christians all over this country that, quite honestly, could care less how their life affects somebody else. People in churches all over the place that don't give a darn about how they carry themselves, about how their actions affect other people, people who don't even give thought to what they say, how they treat people. They, they don't even give thought to how that affects their witness. People in churches everywhere with the attitude, this is who I am, and if people don't like it, tough luck. Friends, if we believe that, you have to literally ignore the Bible. If you, can, if you can honestly say that I am who I am and I don't care what people think about it. Friend, you, you have believed a lie from the pit of hell. I'm just going to tell you that flat out. And I'm not trying to be harsh, but, but the reality is this. There is nothing in the Bible about our rights, 
about us getting our preferences. It, in fact, it's, it's completely the opposite. Becoming a Christian is about giving up our rights. It's about giving up our preferences for the sake of other people. God didn't just save us from judgment. He saved us to walk in righteousness. He didn't just save us from hell, from Satan. He saved us to be a blessing to the people of this world. And so often when it comes to salvation, it's just like this selfish mindset, like, I got my salvation, I got my forgiveness, and who cares about everybody else? It's so wrong. Because the Bible teaches something so, so different. I just want to give you a couple passages, and I'm almost done here. Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Just listen to what this says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. My leadership group should know this one. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And listen, what, this is what follows. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And guess who he died for? You and me. So what this is saying is, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but with humility count others more significant than yourselves. Follow the example of Christ. What's the example of Christ? He gave up everything for you and me. He was God. He had all the rights of everything he wanted, and yet he willingly suffered. He lowered himself. He says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That is the example that Christ has left us as Christians. To worry about others more than we do ourselves. And then 1 Corinthians 8, verses 8 through 13. Now this is regarding the same issue of eating food in idols. The same issue as we talked about today. And, and the Apostle Paul is addressing this argument the Christians are making. They're like, what's the big deal if, if you sacrifice animals to these false gods? Zeus ain't even real. What's the big deal? Right? And, and there's a logical point to this. They're like, it's just meat. Who cares? Like, these Greek gods, they don't even exist. They're just a pigment of people's imagination. But here's what Paul's response was. He says, it's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat, and we don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their own conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because you're of your superior knowledge, a weaker believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do, this, to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. So if what I eat, Paul says, causes another believer to sin, I'll never eat meat again as long as I live. For I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. Are you following what Paul says here? Paul's like, look, if I want to eat meat, what's the big deal? If I'm going to go over there to the temple and have it, what's the big deal? The big deal is it may call somebody over there that, that may have a big conviction against that and may draw them in and cause them to sin. And if, if I cause them to sin, I've sinned against God. He says that I care so much about God that I would, I'd become a vegetarian for the rest of my life. I mean, are, are you following? Here's, here's the point. If there's anything in our lives that even may cause another Christian to stumble or to struggle in their walk with Jesus, or anything in our lives that may hinder our witness of Christ that would bring somebody to salvation, if we really, really love Jesus, if we really, truly love people, then we should abstain from those things. That's the point. Like, I don't care if it's the way we dress, what we consume, how we talk, what we watch, what we listen to. It does not matter. If it becomes a hindrance to others, we should not do it. Romans 15, 1 and 12, verses 1 through 2 tell us this, that the we who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. We must not just please ourselves. We should help Others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. Friends, our personal rights are not more important than our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
what we feel is okay for us to do is not more important than the people we're called to reach that don't know Christ. And it's certainly not more important than honoring God. Friends, we were saved to bring glory to God, not for God to glorify us. We need to live like it. God has called us to forsake selfishness, to put others above ourselves. He's called us to be servants of all. He's called us to restrain our wants and desires for the sake of others. He's called us to be a light to this world. Contrary to what popular American Christianity is teaching these days, our job as Christians is not to blend into the world. We're called to be lights. We're called to stand out. People should see Christ in us. Is it easy? No. It's hard. It's hard because we're all pre-programmed to be selfish. That's what the sin nature is all about. But if we can learn the lesson that is taught here in this passage, if we'll put our concern for others ahead of ourselves, friends, the, the result will be the same in our church as it was back then. The church is going to be strengthened. Our witness is going to be strengthened. People are going to be saved. The, the, the message of Christ is going to go out and God is going to be glorified. I hope that's worth it because it should be. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for this lesson, even though it was a hard lesson, Lord. Sometimes we need those. I know I do, God. Heavenly Father, I don't know what is going on in every single person's life here, Lord, but you do. You know every struggle, every hurt, every problem. And Lord God, I just pray that whatever that is, that you would work in hearts and lives tonight. Heavenly Father, I don't know where every person is at in their, in their walk with you. There may be some here tonight that have never made this, the decision to follow Christ or are unsure of where they're at. Lord, I've shared the gospel earlier, and I'm not going to share it again, but if they've, if they've never made that decision, if they've never surrendered their lives to Jesus, let them do that right now in this place. Let them just come to you in prayer right now and just ask Jesus to come into their lives. And Father, for those of us that are saved, God, I just pray you would give us the ability to put others first. Let us be done with selfishness. Let us be done with selfish ambition, Lord God. And let us think about the people that are watching us, the people that are depending upon us. Let's live for them. Let's live for you. Give us that ability, Lord. God, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me close tonight. We're just going to stand and sing one more song, just a praise, um, just a reflection of the Lord.